Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Marisa Boston. Marisa is Director of Cognitive Technology for KPMG's Cognitive Automation Lab. Marisa, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. Uh, It is great to chat with you. Why don't we get started with a little bit of your background? I understand you spent some time studying at Cornell in upstate New York. That's right. I, I did my PhD at Cornell. I My area of focus was computational linguistics, um, which is a mouthful, but it's essentially building out computer, uh, basically computational models of how humans understand sentences was uh, was the work that I was doing. And so it was a it was a really interesting way to take uh, technology and try to see how how we can investigate uh, scientific matters like, you know, how the human, how the human is understanding language and things like that. And in your work there, were you focused primarily on uh, traditional linguistic models or were you working with statistical models? Yeah, I actually built out statistical parsers. So it was kind of like this, we did both essentially. So we would, um, I worked on statistical sentence parsers, but what I would do is I would use theories from uh, psycholinguistics and from linguistics to help um, determine where difficulty might be in a sentence. And then I would actually test if that difficulty is coming through in the same way for the human as it would be for the computer based on how I encoded those, uh, both the linguistic structures and and um, the the psychological theories as well. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And after your PhD? After my PhD, I decided to go into industry research. Uh, I went to Nuance Communications where I worked in their AI and NLP labs. And that was really fun. I got to do all sorts of things. I worked on the original Watson system, helping to uh, tune it to healthcare. Um, And I worked on other types of question answering and textual inference systems and also virtual assistants for uh, customer service centers. And then you moved over to KPMG, right? I I did. I I ended up moving um, out of tech and I I wanted to go into more of a a consulting firm and a professional services firm because I wanted to get uh, more of a sense of how we can build out the appropriate environment for these technologies and how we can and, and what are the business models that can support them in order to ensure that they are actually being used appropriately? So I, I was kind of getting sick of, you know, I, I realized fairly quickly that no matter how good my designs are, my architectures, my implementations, um, if the business model doesn't support it, then you're not really going to be able to get much use out of it. So I really wanted to get a better sense of how we can build these tools more appropriately. When you say the business model needs to support it and, and creating the appropriate environment. What what all is involved in that? I, I think it really comes down to, first of all, having the appropriate boundaries. So one of the one of the things that interested me about coming to KPMG is that uh, they're an uh, they're an audit firm, audit and tax accounting. And so they have a lot of uh, regulatory pressures on them. And I find this interesting because a lot of times in tech, we think that we have to invent everything. And I, and I think that, 
usually this leads to some kind of a Wild West mentality in terms of what technologies are out there and whether they're appropriate or not. And I was really interested in seeing what kind of human boundaries might be there in terms of regulations and in terms of the types of technologies we can uh, we can actually provide. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing is that, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, it, it teaches you to be an ambassador, not just for what the technologies can do, but also what the technologies can't do. And you start to you start to be able to ask the question of whether these technologies should be employed in this way or is this really going to I, I find in tech often, you know, everybody's going after accuracy or specific requirements along those lines. But instead, when you're at a professional services firms, you start to think about things in terms of more human metrics, like, you know, are we actually leading to higher quality, things like that, that I think is, is really key in helping to understand things. And, and finally, I do think that it's about helping the business transform uh, digitally so that they can help support these systems. So just like anything else, I mean, they, they need the appropriate data, they need the uh, the appropriate improvement methodologies so that they can go forward and actually, you know, you have all of this beautiful technology and all these beautiful methods. Can you actually implement them, but then also improve them so that they can realize their real potential? Yeah, I like the way you, you put that. One of the things that I am finding, you know, interesting and inspiring or in, inspiring is maybe not the word, but heartening uh, is that we're starting to hear more of a shift from the the kind of asking the can we question to the should we question. Uh, and it's, maybe it's not even a shift, but, you know, we're at least starting to hear the should we question in the context of AI and thinking about uh, ethics and uh, appropriateness and, you know, the, the implications of some of this, some of these technologies. Are those questions that you're focused on answering as well? Yeah, and in fact, uh, KPMG even before I started was already going down this this line. So um, their their backing and in, in data and analytics has always been around the the trust aspect, right? Mm -hmm. and, and really about the fact that their clients employ them not for you know efficiency or something along those lines, but really for trust. Um, and also, uh, KPMG the auditors especially. You know, we are we we are responsible for trust in the capital markets because we audit financial statements. You know, we we have that um, responsibility. And so this has been a part of the conversation at KPMG for a long time. And it really intrigued me because when we when they were embarking on building out these types of technologies, they already had that mindset. And it was now really a question of how do we bring in the appropriate people to help us build these out in this way that we want to do. And I find that really, you know, at first it might have felt a little bit like a step backward because it means that, you know, you don't have the gobs of data. You can't use the latest state of the art everything. Right. It means that a lot of times you have to specifically pick your partners for um, according to a different criteria than you normally would. But in the end, I think that what we're seeing, especially now, and this is this is now two years after I started at the firm and, and probably, you know, several years before that KPMG had had already started on this journey. Now you're actually seeing that that others are, are catching up to that way of thinking as well. 
So one of the main topics that we wanted to jump into in this conversation is some work that you've been doing recently around the idea of knowledge graphs. Can you start us off by explaining what a knowledge graph is? Sure. So uh, a knowledge graph, I think a very simple way of thinking of a knowledge graph is is essentially just a network of concepts. And um, knowledge graphs are a simplification of, of more formal ways of defining relationships between concepts and entities. Um, and But they, that simplification allows us to use a variety of techniques that might not always be possible if we go for the stronger versions. And so for at KPMG, for example, we have uh, a lot of processes and a lot of expertise and knowledge that we want to have encoded in a way that we can make use of. And um, a lot of times it's already been put into something like a taxonomy that someone somewhere in the organization has to keep up to date in some way. Um, and what we try to do is we've also hired uh, ontologists to come in and not only help formalize that knowledge in a way that's actually um, uh, a little bit better, but we also use uh, take that kind of stronger version and we simplify it into knowledge graphs to allow us to, for example, take our knowledge about one area and apply it to a knowledge about another area or take internal knowledge and apply it to external news, for example. So we use knowledge graphs to be able to take our internal uh, taxonomies, ontologies about client issues and be able to map them to news that is that is out there. And the knowledge graph is actually a much easier way to do this than a more formal method. And it also allows us to to work with uh, a variety of news vendors that are already using these types of technologies. Mm. So when I think of things like taxonomies and ontologies, one of the first things that I think of is this idea of knowledge management. It's an area that I did some work in a long time ago. Um, knowledge management and document management, there's, you know, those are, that's a kind of a mature space unto itself. Where does cognitive come into all this? So it is a mature place, uh, you know, a mature space. Those technologies are mature, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has implemented them appropriately and that that implementation extends across the whole enterprise. And so one of the things that we found, and and I admit this is not my specific area of expertise. This is, um, we have others within my lab even who have years of expertise in this area, but I've had the opportunity to work with them. But the, the main challenge with uh, knowledge management is that it's not necessarily done in a way, or if it has been done, it hasn't necessarily been done in a way that allows us to take advantage of the data or the information that's available for artificial intelligence systems. A lot of times, the that's one of the problems. Now, at KPMG, and I think that you see this at a variety of other firms and, and organizations as well, that digital transformation hasn't necessarily happened evenly. So while there might be certain places where we have, say, data lakes, in the end, we don't have them everywhere. On top of that, we have uh, another issue, which is that we have 
a lot of restrictions when it comes to client information. We are very restrictive and risk averse when it comes to client information. And so a lot of the processes end up being manual because of that. So there has to be a, a culture shift there as well. So you're absolutely right. Some of these methods are fairly uh, mature and we know what the methods are. We just have to implement them. And I'd say, for example, in the way that we're using knowledge graphs, this is not something that we're making up. In fact, if you look at a lot of CRM solutions, this is how they operate. They have some kind of a, an internal taxonomy or internal idea of what are important concepts. You can go off and look at external news or else you can you know, look at uh, information between services and engagements and you try to map them out appropriately. We're doing exactly the same thing, but I think the main distinction is that we're putting our own spin on it. Um, we're taking information that has long been internal to KPMG, and now we have the technology to be able to use that information and map it out to external news in a way that actually benefits our workers. You're taking advantage of these techniques that have matured under the banner of knowledge management. Are you also then incorporating in artificial intelligence and cognitive uh, technologies? Well, presumably you are. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, we do. So this, um, so this is one particular project where we're using knowledge graphs. Now, um, we don't just serve up the information, right? So it, it's not just that we have external news and we say, hey, here's a bunch of news articles. We actually do this in a way that allows us to contextualize it according to rec specific recommendations that will help our account leads. So we we have information about the services KPMG offers. We have information about previous engagements. We have information about the clients. We have now external news, and we're able to use the knowledge graph to try to map all of these appropriately, and then also try to see what are the top recommendations we have for services. And then we use our news articles or previous engagements as support for that. Right. So it's kind of like evidence for why we're giving this recommendation and all of this. So it, it not just the ability to use um, knowledge graphs in this way to be able to map across all of these different areas, um, but also the, the recommendation engines use a variety of techniques that, um, you know, whether they're it's kind of difficult to say where they fit in right to AI, but they're within the context of general machine learning and and general practice. It's more a question of how do we apply it to our specific business. And maybe let's take a, a step back and and kind of put a a fine point on this project. You are essentially building up a a you know would you call it a dashboard for these account managers that helps them kind of stay on top of uh, news that affects their clients. Yeah, exactly. So this is kind of an additional insight engine that we provide to our account managers. And one of the things to take into account is that especially when these systems go live, um, you know, we would put this up and, you know, our top account managers say for our, you know, uh, most, you know, our top 100 or 200 accounts, right? These are people who really know their clients. These are people who really know what's going on. They're reading the news and they have their own intuitions. These are our top experts in terms of what's important. Now, this system is likely not going to provide that much insight for these top accounts where we already have a lot of people looking into this 
and a lot of this information isn't missed. But where you really start to see the advantage of this is when you extend past that. And what we're really trying to think of is how do we take the quality that we're able to provide for our top from our top experts to our top clients, and how do we expand that beyond? And when you think further back, so when you think about the fact that you know uh, other account managers might have, you know, like twenty accounts that they have to, you know, twenty clients that they that they have to somehow manage and juggle, and they might not be able to, for example, look into the news every single day for those. At that point, you start to see why this kind of a recommendation engine might help us find things that we might have normally missed and help us expand our quality beyond the what we're currently able to provide to only a few clients. Right, right. Well, I can relate very personally to the challenge that you're trying to address here just in my own role as a uh, an industry analyst and a, a you know someone that needs to stay on top of you know not just kind of what the large vendors are doing in AI but what the smaller vendors are are doing what the you know the major technology platforms and frameworks and there's just a ton of information out there and you know like you said I've got some kind of go-to sources and some go-to feeds that uh and tools even that I can rely on to help me stay informed. But I am often, you know, almost daily, you know, wishing that I had something that was smarter, that was more intelligent, more connected, more tied into the things that I need to stay on top of that could be almost like a, you know, a personal agent, a personal assistant, a dashboard that surfaced all of the things that I need to needed to know, but also, you know, pushed down the things that uh, aren't as important for me and, and was able to learn the difference between the two over time. Exactly. And, and I think there's two important things of what you're saying there. One is, I think just the process of understanding how to encode the expertise that you have, right? So the process that we have our experts go through, like especially with our chief ontologist in terms of being able to better hone, what are the important concepts? How are they doing their jobs right now? How do we take that important information and how do we build out exactly what those intuitions might be? I think that's one really good thing that comes out of, of transforming, say, your, you know, what you yourself do as an analyst um, into into something uh, that that could be more like a digital process, right? Then the other thing, as you're saying, is absolutely, uh, once you have that, you can really start to play with how do we start thinking about how we can expand the, the quality, you know, you, you want to be able to focus your attention and your top quality to the best things. And, and this really gets into the expert augmentation space, which is a, a key tenet of how we approach building these systems uh, at KPMG for, say, our auditors, right? You want to be able to take your expertise, try to be able to go out and discover as much information as you can, but then also allow the human to come back and make conclusions on that. And hopefully through the process of there would be an iterative process where you would be training, say, this assistant. You know, we try to make it out so that it would be more like an intern at first, right? So what could you expect of your intern? We try to get our systems to a level where on day one, they'd be kind of like an intern. 
right? But hopefully through the process, we would improve it to the point where they could become relied on more and more. And that's really what you want to get to. Uh, I love that. I love that idea. So what are some of the, uh, some of the technology pieces upon which you built this? You mentioned Watson earlier and working with some of the first Watson technologies for healthcare. Uh, are you using Watson in here as well? So we had originally done, uh, so uh, I had previously done work with Watson, and now when it uh, with a lot of the work that we're doing at KPMG, some of it goes with IBM products and, and various things in Watson. Now, this particular one, we originally, the original prototype um, was with uh, Watson Company Analyzer, which was, um, they, they had bought Alchemy News, which was a, a new service, and they were able, they were essentially doing this. They had a knowledge graph. Um, Alchemy Alchemy News had a knowledge graph of news articles uh, for the news, and they were able to deliver content in a specific way. And what we wanted to do is we, you know, the their knowledge graph wasn't quite as extensive for financial services or for the information we had. Right. So it, it was definitely good because it allowed you to have a general view of news, which is something KPMG can't have. We don't have that kind of taxonomy, but we definitely have much more specificity when it comes to client issues with financial services. And it turned out that being able to map those two across was not working out very well. So what we ended up doing was we ended up bringing it in house and um, we we built uh, we we've played with Watson Discovery Services and using that here. Um, we use uh, Watson Knowledge Studio for entity extraction and uh, the actual knowledge graph and the reasoning components um, actually aren't Watson components right now, but that was mostly because of just the difficulty and, and you know, making sure that IP, our IP stayed ours and their IP stayed theirs. Mm. So it was more of that kind of a concern. Oh, makes sense. And so what is the... Watson Discovery Service and what's the role that that piece plays for you? So Watson Discovery Service is is where um, IBM has put a lot of their search uh, works uh, recently. So they used to have something called uh, Retrieve and Rank, and um, they've built out Watson Discovery Service to be kind of a, a much stronger search engine. Um, and it and it uh, the the advantage is that you can use. Watson Knowledge Studio, so entity recognition, you kind of can train your own entity recognizers. You can do a search over, um, over you, you know, it, it allows you to index, it allows you to uh, create a ranking engine over over what's searched, and it allows you to build out queries. It's kind of like a, um, a, a big search interface, but they also call it the discovery service because they've also expanded that so that now you can kind of you, there's also an interactive quality. So it's not just the delivery of a search engine, but it, there's also an interactive quality in terms of your being able to look through your data and find insights from it. So they've combined a few services through it. And so how does the Knowledge Studio interact with the discovery service? What you can do with Knowledge Studio is uh, Knowledge Studio allows you to build out entity recognition, essentially, or entity extraction models. One of the first use cases or examples I think of when I hear that is like a, a chat bot where you're trying to identify like intents or, um, you know, entities that you're, that someone is asking about via a, a chat conversation. Is it also, in this case, is it used in, in that context or like in a search context where you're refining search results based on entities? 
So what you can do is you can actually use those entities to index what you're searching over so that you could just like in a in a chatbot, you would sit there and you'd say, you know, you want to mark out the the fact that, you know, somebody wants to fly to Calgary, say Calgary would be where they're flying to. Right. Mm -hmm. So Watson Knowledge Studio would be able to tell you that that would be like the location. So similarly, you could mark up, say, all of the search pages that you're searching over, right? So all of the content you're trying to search through. And Watson Knowledge Studio could go through and say, oh, well, you know what? Every time you see Calgary, that's actually a location that someone could fly to or something like that. So it's it's basically the same thing, and it allows you to augment your search uh, appropriately with, with concepts that, you know, you can train on yourself. So, for example, for us, uh, you know, a specific individual could be a corporation, and you might be able to find that from just any named entity recognizer. But for our purposes, we really can think of that person as a borrow as a borrower. So that's like a borrower in a loan agreement, say. And we would want to capture that information. That's what Watson Knowledge Studio would allow you to do. It would take that information and say, you know what, this is the borrower, and um, this is the guarantor name in this lien- in this loan agreement. Watson Knowledge Studio allows you to to find that information and to train models that can that can help you find that information for the concepts that you're interested in. And then from that, you can build out a knowledge graph, of course. Okay, interesting. And so presumably with the this example you gave of the the borrower and the creditor, it's not like a place, you know, versus a company name. They're both company names. And so presumably it's able to figure out the specific entity types based on context. Yeah, exactly. So essentially in the back end, it has, um, it uses features of, you know, different types of of sentence-based features. So I assume they have engrams of some kind and other things that allows them to differentiate that. And then in terms of how you train it, right, it's all about you, you annotate yourself and you, you train it based on lots of information. And so if you provide it with the appropriate types of information that can differentiate those two, you should be able to arrive at a model for borrower and a model for guarantor. Do you have a sense for the number of training examples that are required kind of per entity in order to get a a reasonable level of accuracy? So yeah, generally what they recommend, uh, IBM, so to be clear, I've, I've never worked with IBM for IBM, but I have worked uh, with their products. Generally, it's going to be about 50 positive examples that you want to provide and um, for each entity. And a positive example, of course, means that it's actually there. So you can't just like provide 50 documents and sometimes the, the guarantor name is there and sometimes it isn't, right? So you want to have at least 50 um, examples. Uh, in practice, we actually, you know, it really does depend on a lot of variables in terms of where that entity shows up and what you're trying to differentiate it from um, in order to determine what the appropriate number are. But I would be hesitant to even rely on results if, if you don't have at least 50 positive examples. Mm-hmm. We usually go for about 200 to start. I imagine it's per entity. Yeah, per entity, exactly. So you're right. Like you could have a document where you're trying to get 10 things out. Um, you know, you might, you, you can't just go for 50 of those. You might have to end up, that's why I say we usually end up with about 200 documents. And hopefully through there, we can find at least 50 positive examples for each of the things we're trying to pull. 
you have the entity recognition system. You've got the discovery service, which is kind of a search engine that can take advantage of the these entities. We've experimented with Watson Discovery Service, but I, I don't think actually right now we have that in in play. But that's one possible way that you could actually build out this kind of thing. Um, essentially, what 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 we've built out is it's a it's a typical recommendation engine, um, but we also have a graph based database for the that represents the knowledge graph, and um, we essentially pull in. Uh, we pull in specific articles, uh, we, ter- we rank them, and uh, we rank them according to what the recommendation is for the service. So, for example, it's not we want to recommend a specific service that KPMG offers for a client. And then once we've made that recommendation, we show as evidence news articles or, say, history of engagements, other engagements that are similar um, a variety of other factors that may come into play to determine that recommendation. So as you can see here, the knowledge graph is not in and of itself uh, what we're delivering. It's more of a way for us to um, rank appropriately the evidence for us to recommend a, a service for a client. Where do the, where do the news feeds come from? Uh, so we have uh, we use very, uh, the the news feeds that are most important for KPMG, um, but you can imagine they're they're very similar to to what you would normally expect. But it's not going to be like tech news feeds. It's going to be more business oriented news feeds. Right. So maybe like a Thomson Reuters or something like that that, that uh, is like a third party feed that you're pulling in. Exactly, something like that. We talked a little bit about in the ideal world, you've got this is able to learn over time from the interactions with the actual users. Have you implemented that part of it yet? So we actually just went live across 700 accounts just about a month ago. So we, we're still very much new in terms of the improvement strategy, but we have piloted that. And um, now it's a question of how much, you know, what, what it really comes down to is you we're not just going to accept, for example, any feedback as some as a corrective measure for a recommendation engine. So it's really going to be a process where the technologists and the data scientists work hand in hand with the with our best experts to determine, you know, based on the use and the patterns that we're seeing, what are the things that will allow us to best optimize and improve the system without, for example, going too far down edge cases or, you know, being, you know, really looking at the data, but having an expert's eye over it. That's really going to be a key part of the improvement strategy. You mentioned the entity recognition piece, and I recently did some work with uh, actually a, a group of accounting firms talking to them about AI and its implications in that space. And one of the use cases that came up quite a bit, uh, and KPMG has been very active in this area as well, has been uh, using natural language processing for uh, document and contract review, and in particular, uh, lease review and lease abstraction uh, there's been some recent regula- regulatory changes that go into effect the beginning of next year, I believe, um, that change the way leases are accounting f- accounted for. And many of the firms have jumped on AI as a 
a way to automate the review of, you know, in some cases, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of leases to figure out what those, the terms of those leases are. And this concept of entity recognition plays pretty heavily in that whole use case. Have you been involved in any of the work on, on that type of application? Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, the changes in IFRS 16 are, are what are causing all of everybody to kind of go around in a panic here about this. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this, um, you're right. So uh, I, I think in the end, what everybody would love to see is an automatic way of finding this information in a contract, pulling it out appropriately, and then determining based on it, what what the appropriate treatment is. And KPMG has a few different options. So one thing is we have the, the KPMG leasing tool, which is really once you know, you have the, the terms and all of the, uh, and all of the options and all of this information out of the lease, it's able to tell you what the appropriate treatment is. But one of the difficulties is that it's actually a manual process to go from the contract itself, the language in the contract into an understanding of that contract to the point where you could actually say extract entities or facts from it in a way that would make be meaningful input into the KPMG leasing tool or any other, uh, let's call it calculator of, of what the appropriate treatment would be for the leases. Mm -hmm. So the, this, uh, lease abstraction or, or we call it, um, extraction work is something that my group has been involved in. And actually there's a variety of groups who are involved in it across the, the firm with a variety of different ways of doing it. So, uh, we have people who are going after this from a very specific, you know, delivery model where, you know, you have 10,000 leases and you want this particular, you know, just a few uh, entities abstracted from them, then we'll be able to deliver something that gives you like a spreadsheet of all of that. Now, the the work that I've been working on has been more, I'd say more at the managed service or more at the expert augmentation level where I, I haven't just been focused on lease contracts. I, I've been working for the past few years on, on trying to build out a contract reading tool more generally for, for auditors, um, where the idea is that I, I'm coming from the perspective that the facts that have to be extracted actually require a significant amount of human interpretation. Like So usually with extraction, you have let's say an entity, and it's fairly easy to take, pull that string out of the text. And then it's even better if that's the exact string that you would want to use further down the process, like whether, you know, input it into an Excel or put it into a calculation. But right. generally, there's some level of human interpretation in terms of taking that, say, entity and applying a calculation or resolving it in some way so that it's meaningful later on. And my my feeling, especially when you look across the space of contracts, is that, you know, maybe about 20 to 30 of these entities and leases are fairly easy to extract. Um, but just based on the, you know, the, the differences in language around, uh, around real estate leases versus equipment leases, for example, it's very difficult to build models um, once you get beyond those 20 and 30. And, and a lot of times you do have to go beyond that to build out the calculations appropriately. So we build out expert augmentation systems for our auditors where it helps them find the information in the original document when we're able to find it 
we take them there when we're able to, when we can't find the exact information, we try to take them to where in the text we think it is. And even better, when it's something that requires several pieces of text that need to be resolved, we try to bring them to all of that text so that they can resolve it more appropriately. So we don't kind of, we, we really keep our knowledge workers in the system. This is very much expert augmentation for a managed service, which means a human's always going to be the person who's the ultimate arbiter. We're not really looking for uh, automatic extraction. But there are other parts of the organization that are using very different techniques in order to be able to do that as well. Can you give us a specific example of where you need this expert's perspective to fully resolve uh, an entity? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, uh, so uh, sometimes you have to determine, for example, um, what is the, I'm thinking of service contracts, but there, there are other contracts where you have specific terms and you have to think about the frequency of something. A lot of times the way to determine the frequency usually involves a few different areas where they'll, they'll name a frequency, a specific frequency, but then later on they'll say, except in the case where you have this, in which case it goes to this other type of frequency. Well, this is exactly the kind of thing where when you look at what the input to these calculators are, it's going to be something like monthly. When you look at the text, it's, it requires a significant amount of human, in, of human interpretation to get from, say, three paragraphs to be able to determine that it's actually monthly for, for this specific period. Mm. This is the kind of thing that I'm thinking of as being somewhat difficult. Now, you could argue that these might be edge cases, and, and, I'm, and, and it could be when it comes to the IFRS 16 changes, right? So this is, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of auditors who have to go through a lease and find all of the information very, you know, very specifically. They can't miss information, right? It's a different perspective if you're looking at this from the advisory case where it's kind of like, I got 10,000 things to go through, like just find me, you know, the, the top 10 and then I'll, I'll figure out what to do with the rest. Just I, I need to, you know, I need to do this quickly. So it's a different use case. Um, but I, I come at it from the perspective of, of the auditor and helping them not miss information um, rather than just trying to get the information as quickly as possible. It's an interesting idea. A lot of the lease extraction or contract uh, extraction products, projects that I've seen are kind of pulling out this simple, you know, some simple entity or trying to do simple calculations to resolve, call it first degree abstract entities. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if the contract duration is a year, you know, and you've got the date that the contract is signed, you can figure out the end date of the contract, right. for example. Um, but it does strike me that uh, I, I definitely can see how in some scenarios, what you really need is to uh, is to pull out the rules themselves, because that's what the person who's going to end up reviewing this, you know, needs to be able to to think about are the, you know, the different, you know, scenarios and you know, even the representation of that like how do you stick a rule into an excel you know so. yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly and when you look at some of the excel cell, uh, spreadsheets that are being input into these tools i mean it's really ridiculous how they try to break this apart um, because you can see the kind of contortions they had to go through 
in order to build this out appropriately to get all of the information they need to apply the appropriate treatment, the calculation that determines the appropriate treatment, and, and the fact that there's a lot of complexity there. I, I think that it's important. And I should say, for the easier entities, we're doing the same thing as everyone else. We're using entity extraction, and we're doing fairly well with it. But the, the difference is that we're, we want to be able to provide a, a tool or tooling that allows our auditors to read any type of contract and find the appropriate information and I think that's a slightly different take on it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, believe me, everyone in KPMG, well, a lot of people in KPMG are very much interested in what the appropriate way to do this is. And I think it really does make sense for KPMG to have a variety of, of business models depending on what the client needs. Uh, absolutely. And, and as you well know, not just KPMG. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, interesting. So I'm curious... As we maybe start to wrap up, like, you know, a lot of what you are focused on here is this idea of expert augmentation or augmented intelligence, you know, however you want to uh, describe it. Are there some general principles that you've taken away from uh, the various places that you've worked to use AI to to augment experts? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I know that there are some tenets that I really feel strongly about in the in the systems that that I design and that that I, I try to push for. One of them, I mean, it comes back to what we had discussed early in the conversation. It really is about the appropriate way to uh, to codify knowledge and expertise and finding the best way you can do that and. Um, I think at KPMG, what we've learned is that we, we try to employ various techniques, but we really want to make sure that we use the, the best possible technique for posterity. So we do use ontologies and we try to encode our information in ontologies as much as we can. But at the same time, we try to extract away from those or simplify those when it's needed for a very specific technical implementation. So we understand the limitations of both, and we try to be able to use them appropriately in the right contexts. The the other thing that I think is really important is I'm 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 very I'm very interested in the the type of human that we are augmenting and the the role that this augmentation has. So I think that it's very different building out systems for efficiencies versus building out systems for quality. And I personally have always kind of been intrigued by expert augmentation for quality. So like I said, I, this might come back to the fact that I was working on Watson for healthcare originally. And that's one of the driving questions, right? You don't necessarily, you, you want to make a doctor's life easier, but so that you can increase the quality of what they're able to provide, right? right. And so it, it's very similar for me. I, I really think about the fact that our end result for example, when we're looking at audit, is not to miss information. We, you know, uh, that is the biggest risk for audit is we have to be able to say we've looked at all the information, we're able to deliver the appropriate opinion based on it. And I find that is a very intriguing way to build out these systems. And I really want to make sure that the knowledge workers are in that system and are being there to train the system appropriately. So I've been 
I talk a lot about machine teaching versus machine learning and this whole idea of having the system as kind of an intern at first for our engagement teams. This is the kind of thing that I think will help us build out the next generation of systems because in the end, there are there are few of these experts. You know, I'm not I'm not working with like say in the consumer space where we have millions of users. You know, in the end, there might be only a handful of experts in the world with this particular who who understand this. And so, how do we encode that information? How do we capture the decisions they're making? And how do we and how do we make their lives easier so that they can, in the end, deliver higher quality decisions? Yeah, really interesting. I, I can, uh, you know, I can continue to talk about this forever. Like I said, a lot of it I can relate to very personally. And, you know, one of the things I'm most, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, I think the the exciting thing about AI is its ability to give people superpowers. And it's particularly the case for, you know, or at least I think about it most uh, frequently, you know, for folks like me that are trying to manage these torrents of, of information and uh, AI uh, is a really powerful, you know, set of tools to uh, to help us do that. In fact, there's so many different ways that AI can be used to, you know, augment, you know, expert workers or, or knowledge workers. Um, and so it's really interesting to learn a, a bit about the different ways that you're enabling that. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you as well. And uh, it's exciting to, uh, to hear uh, that there's interest in this little corner of the world, but I'm excited about it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Marisa. Thank you, Sam. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.